But like I said, today we're going to talk about Advent. Uh, this is the first Sunday in Advent. If you didn't grow up in kind of a more traditional church, uh, you may have missed out on the fun of Advent. Advent is, is kind of an interesting season in the uh, church calendar. If you're not f- familiar with Advent, we're going to kind of talk about a little bit about the history of Advent uh, and learn some of the reasons why Advent is something that the Christian church for a long time is focused on. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and for this chance to begin to explore uh, the season of Advent and what it invites us to consider in our lives and how it invites us to live. Uh, I pray that as we open up your word that you would change us. And we thank you that every time that we open up your word, we're changed by it. And so we invite you now to come and search our hearts and our minds and our lives and, and begin to direct us into the kind of life that you invite us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Advent, of course, brings us all the way back to the story of Exodus. It makes sense, right? Christmas and Exodus. Uh, In order to understand uh, the story and and the reason for Advent, we have to start way back in the book of Exodus and the story of Exodus. If you remember, Exodus is all about this group of slaves who are under the Pharaoh in Egypt who is making them make bricks. If you remember, their life is bricks. Bricks, bricks, bricks. Eat, sleep, bricks. Bricks. Tomorrow there's bricks. Today there's bricks. Tomorrow and the next day after that there's bricks. And so when God rescues the people of, Egypt, uh, of Israel out of Egypt and he brings them into, uh, towards the promised land and they're wandering the desert for 40 years, one of the first things he does for them is he gives them a, a set of commands. Uh, most of us know them as the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments kind of serve as this uh, shaping and forming of the people of Israel. And so one of the first commandments that he actually gives to the people of Israel is this commandment about the Sabbath. Uh, He actually says, uh, for six days you'll work, six days you'll make bricks, but on the seventh you won't. And it seems like kind of an interesting command because there's seven days in a week, so we could actually work seven days. But, But God gives this command, six days you'll work, and seven you won't. It's an interesting command, and the early Christians actually looked back to the story of the Exodus and looked back to this idea of Sabbath and came up with this church calendar that's all based on seasons. And all the seasons are different than kind of our solar-based system, so it's not fall or spring, but it's Lent and Advent and and, uh, the period of Epiphany and and all these kind of words. They're able to give uh, hope and rest And they're able to give movement to the seasons because they found that life isn't supposed to be just bricks and bricks and bricks, but there's supposed to be this this moments of rhythm and rest where you take pause and you reflect on the things of God. And so uh, the early Christians took a look at the calendar and said, wait a minute, there there should be periods where, where we're excited, where we're filled with joy, but there should also be moments that are filled with, with pain and loss. So areas of our lives like Lent and and Advent. And actually, it's a lot like life, in fact. And so the early Christians, as they formed this kind of Christian calendar, it was really based on on the seasons that we experience as as humanity. Uh, Periods where we're really pissed off at God, and then periods where we're madly in love with him. So the Christian calendar is based on the the whole of the human experience, of, uh, of experiencing deep loss, but experiencing amazing joy all within the same year. And so this idea of Advent and this idea of the Exodus story really comes back to this idea. The early Christian church and the early Christian fathers understood this idea. 
The problem wasn't just getting people out of Egypt, like just leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. They understood deeply that the problem was that we have to get Egypt out of us. There's a difference. It wasn't just that we need to remove people from a physical location so that they can experience freedom, but we have to begin to remove Egypt from within inside of us. Egypt throughout Scripture represents this kind of oppression and sin and the wrong way of life. And so the early Christian church understood the problem was that Egypt is deep inside of us. And until we deal with Egypt inside of us, nothing will ever be fixed. And that, of course, brings us to Advent. Advent is this way of anticipation and longing for what could be. Advent is this season as we take about four weeks until uh, the Christ child would come. And so the early church would spend four weeks exploring these ideas of, of how the world is broken, but something needs to be done. And, and so there's this crying out, this longing, this anticipation for that one day, even though things are broken, even though Egypt is deep inside of me, one day things will be different. And so uh, Advent is this way of anticipation, and in it we wait we wait together. I mean, we think about our lives and our day-to-day lives, and, and Advent invites us to do this, to wait, because one day it will be made right. It invites us to say, not everything is right. Something is missing. But everyone I know is cynical. Everyone I know is cynical in some way. Uh, a, few, a few weeks ago or so, uh, when everything was happening with Penn State, there was an article that was passed around a lot Uh, written by a guy who's in his late 20s, early 30s, uh, who wrote an article about how uh, we can no longer trust our parents' generation. Maybe you read it. Maybe you saw it passed around. It it talked a lot about how, again and again, we see the failings of the leaders of our parents' generation, whether it's presidents or political leaders or religious leaders. And and it's a very cynical kind of post, saying, like, I guess we just have to give up. And I think... That's kind of the feeling that most of us have. When we think about institutions or we think about political leaders or we think about religious leaders or the church or or this person or this relationship, there's this sense in all of us that looks at all of those areas and says, it's not going to work. I've experienced this before. It's not good enough. So don't get your hopes up because we all know what happens in the end. Cynicism may be the new religion in our world, especially amongst our generation. We might be the most cynical generation that has ever lived because we can experience it all. We can see it all unfold before our very eyes and know that it's probably not as good as it looks. Cynicism is this thing that kind of begins to rail against everything that Advent speaks for, everything about this hope that Advent offers, that one day the world could be different, that one day my life can change, rails against this idea. Everything in us, everything that Scripture offers as hope is faced with this idea that maybe, just maybe, it's not as good as it seems, as good as it appears. Advent confronts cynicism in its face and says, Advent invites that there actually is hope, that actually at the end of the story, the world does change. At the end of the story, my life can actually be better. At the end of the story, something is real. Hope is real and, and, and that something is coming. Advent screams at us to wake up in the midst of our world and begin to accept that tomorrow will actually come. That tomorrow I will wake up. 
Advent is this invitation for us to believe that tomorrow can happen and to believe that I can be more than I am today. Enter into this world, Jesus. Probably a passage most of us are familiar with around Christmas time that we're going to take a look at comes from Matthew chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25. If you have a smartphone, you can follow along in version. Or uh, if you need a Bible, there's a few people who can walk around and hand a Bible. If you just raise your hand, they'll make sure you get one. But we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. And this is kind of a culmination of all that's been happening. For 400 years, God has not spoken. For 400 years, there hasn't been a prophet. And then all of a sudden... We enter the scene at Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, and this is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was, a faithful, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until after she gave birth to a son. And they gave him the name Jesus. Life as a first century Jew was a different kind of life. Uh, As a first century Jew, uh, you were occupied by the Roman army at all times. Life looked kind of interesting for the Jewish people at this time. Most of them earned their living through some sort of skilled trade, uh, whether carpentry or fishing. Uh, Up to 50% of their wages were usually taxed between uh, the Roman government and the temple, so up to 50% of their wages was taken away. Uh, Most girls were married by the time they were 15 and died by the time they were 40. Uh, Most families had at least four or more children who lived with them, including their extended family at all times. A house built for five usually housed about 15 people. They constantly faced the the prospect that the Roman government at any time could come in and wipe them out. At any time, they could uh, retaliate for some sort of uh, rebellion. Their fellow Jews expected them to live a certain way, to make certain sacrifices at certain times. Uh, And they could be kicked out of the temple and, and their family for not doing the right thing. Jesus is born into this world filled with political pressure, economic pressure, filled with with familiar pressure, filled with all all kinds of religious pressure. And that's the world that we enter into, a world where where people are facing these these pressures to, to live a certain way, to act a certain way, to do certain things because something bad could happen. And it's in the midst of this world filled with its drama, filled with its issues, its cynicism, its religion, its doubts, and its fears that God enters the scene in the person of Jesus. And we discover quickly that, that there's something different about Jesus. In fact, uh, John, in John, who's probably Jesus' best friend on earth, says this about Jesus in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came for the Father, full of grace and truth. I love the message because it says it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It gives us this idea, this hint about who Jesus is, that God is no longer up there, something to be reached for or grasped after, but all of a sudden God who made the heavens and the earth, who lives in heaven, enters the human story. He, he enters our world. He's no longer up there, but now he's down there. He lives in our neighborhood. The Jewish people have this word to describe how Jesus would enter the scene. Uh, Isaiah, about 700 years before Jesus is born, says that there'll be this guy, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. It's an important phrase, God with us. It's a word that we hear all the time around Christmas time. We sing songs about it. This idea of Emmanuel, God with us, God entering the human story. Isaiah spoke about how this would happen in Isaiah 7.14, and he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah spoke that this Emmanuel would, would right wrongs in our world, that he would bring peace, that he would forgive us, that he would heal our hurts, that he would set the prisoner free, that he would suddenly and immediately change the world forever. Emmanuel, God with us. He spoke of, of how God would, would be with us in the midst of our world, that he wouldn't take us away from our world, but would come to be with us now in the midst of our drama, in the midst of our religion, our cynicism, our fears, in the midst of all these expectations that we have, that God would suddenly enter in the midst of those. He spoke about how God was no longer going to be off in the distance, some clockmaker God who made the world and then left it alone. But all of a sudden, God was going to enter the human story in a way unlike any other God. Paul later in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, says it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul and John and Matthew give us this picture of this Jesus, that this is not a Jesus who, who holds us at arm's length, but rather it's this Jesus who comes and moves into our neighborhood, who becomes our neighbor, who becomes to be with us. So Advent is this season when we begin to reflect and, and turn our lives towards this baby in a manger. <laughs> This baby who came to be with you, to be with me. And it gives us this hint. If Jesus came to be your neighbor, if Jesus came to be my neighbor, it gives us this hint at who this God really is. That he's not interested in the people who have it all together. He's not interested in the people who have their lives in order so that he can fix, so that he doesn't have to do anything. But in fact, he comes to be the neighbor of the abused and the worn out, the stressed out, those who are used and struggling those who are sinful with doubts and fears. This is the God that, that we find out about in the person of Jesus, that he's not interested in coming for those who have it all together. He comes to be the God of those who, who are struggling, who are messed up, who are struggling to figure out what's right and what's wrong. He comes to be the God of those who are broken and broken about the world around them. He comes to be the God of the overwhelmed and the abused 
and the, those who, who are waiting, longing for the wrongs to be righted. He comes for me. He comes for you. This is what it means for Emmanuel to be with us. For God to be with us is this, this idea that in the midst of the span of time that God enters our human story. Martin Luther said it this way, Emmanuel best means this, that it means God sunken deep in flesh and blood. God sunk deep in flesh and blood enters into this human story with all of its issues, with all of our fighting, with all of our our mess-ups and our sin and our inability to do the right thing. This is the story he chooses to enter. C.S. Lewis claimed that Advent serves as this homing beacon for humanity. It serves as this, this homing beacon to return us to who God is and what he can do for us. I think it makes sense uh, as I think about Advent and I think about what Christmas means to me. I'm reminded often that these seasons, these church calendar seasons that exist, uh, are served for that purpose. They offer us the chance to stop and, and get rid of the cynicism and, and, and issues that hold us back and begin to say, what if? What if, what if this year my life looked different? Advent offers us the possibility of tomorrow. God with us offers us the possibility of that, that tomorrow can actually change. So we're invited each Advent, each year as we look forward to the birth of Christ. It's not just another time of year. It's just not another time we give presents or give gifts or gather around a Christmas tree. Instead, Advent serves as this reminder that tomorrow when you wake up, life can completely change. That tomorrow, as you get up from your bed, that tomorrow you can live life differently because God offers to be with you in the midst of everything that you're going through, everything that you're facing. Advent is a season where we choose to stop and say, God, I don't have it all together. I don't, I don't have it all figured out. I'm, I'm full of cynicism. I've got a hard heart. I'm bitter. I'm jaded. And we can stop and choose to say, God, I, I want to believe again. I want to be- believe again in what happened at Christmas. I want to believe again in what happened when God sunk deep in flesh and blood. I want to believe that you can actually be with me. Advent invites us to return to the manger. I know that growing up, I, I heard lots of stories about the manger. And some of them uh, made me kind of confused. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the manger scene where all the shepherds are there, all the wise men are there all at the same time. Uh, didn't happen, okay? They weren't all there at the same time. Uh, also, a manger is not like a barn. It's like a cave. So I've told Jen several times we need to change our manger scene so that we actually have a cave. She's not really for it. But I, I keep trying to, trying to make it happen. Also, they're all white. <laughs> Did anybody else catch that? They're, all of them are white. No matter what. Jesus, white. The wise men, white. Shepherds, of course they're white. You know, like, like, and we have this story, and I think for a lot of us, like, we look at this, this manger scene and we go like, oh, isn't, it's, it's nice. It's, no animals don't smell. Like, they're in a barn with animals pooping next to them. And we're like, oh, it's, it's good. But the story, it's messy. 
It's like Jesus is born into this messy world where he's born next to smelly, pooping animals, and we're like, it's pretty. We should put it on our fireplace. <laughs> like, like, it's normal. And, and I, think, I think what we do in Christmas is sometimes we lose, like, I don't know, the majesty and the beauty of it because it is so messy. You see, in, in the messiness of, of the real manger scene, there's this king of the world born next to animals. Born next to stinking, pooping animals. That's where God's born. He doesn't come born in a modern world with nice hospitals and, and, and everything in place. Instead, he's born to a, a girl who probably for most of her life after that was accused of adultery. He's born to, to this dad who at one point is like, should I kill her? Uh, no, it's just okay. Like, the whole story is messed Messed up. It's filled with messy characters, messy stories. That's the story that Jesus enters. And I think if we stop for a moment this Christmas season and we begin to say, wait, wait a minute, that clean image that I imagine, that clean image I imagine God wants from me can't be true because the Christmas story isn't that clean. And I think if we could stop this Christmas season and realize that what, what God's inviting us to is this messy story where he enters the mess of our lives. Our lives would start to look a lot different. St. Augustine, who, uh, has writ- who wrote several books back in the early 300s, one of, his, uh, one of his, my favorite quotes from him goes like this. Everlasting God, in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself, so that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the point of this whole Advent thing. That we live 11 months of our lives restless, searching for God in the midst of all these other kinds of things, cynical and broken and jaded by the world that we live in. And yet Advent offers us something different, rest. See, the point of Advent is not to do more, or to attain more, or give more, or anything like that. In fact, the point of Advent is to stop doing all those things. To stop, and to wait, to rest, to find rest in God. And so this Advent season, as you live life, as you attend Christmas parties, and buy gifts, and go Black Friday, and Cyber Monday shopping, and all those things, there's this invitation that Advent offers us. To wait. To stop. To find rest in the only place you'll ever really discover it, to find rest in Christ himself. Because in that messy manger scene, there's this invitation that God offers us. He offers us this life that we couldn't imagine, that we can only find in him. God's been pursuing you this whole year. The last 11 months, God's been pursuing you. And in the midst of of all of his pursuit of you, he's been offering you, Rest In the midst of your joy and your tears, in the midst of your pain, God has been pursuing you, offering you this rest, and it's only been found in Him. This past week uh, has been a little crazy for, uh, for me. So on Monday, I found out that I might not have a job, right? Which is always a fun start to your Thanksgiving week. And it's interesting when you hear that news, like when uh, when you're the only one who works uh, and gets paid for it in your family. And so uh, all of a sudden you're faced with all these questions. Well, do I change professions? How much money do I actually need? 
what happens if I have no money? And, and you're faced with all these kinds of questions. And uh, it's interesting how you respond to the possibility of not having a job. And, and a lot of people uh, have asked me since they found out, like, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, it sucks. You know, like, it really does. But there's this possibility that's in the midst of it. Because there's always a hope in the midst of it. And see, everyone I know is cynical. And so it's always interesting to see how people who are cynical respond to bad news. Because it's just like, see, I told you everything was going to go wrong or, or happen bad. I choose to believe in hope. I choose to believe that Advent and the story of Christ offers this hope in the midst of it. So there's one way to look at not having a job. is like, see, I told you everything, everything bad happens. Or, I told you it couldn't last. But hope offers this perspective. Tomorrow's a new day. Tomorrow will be different. My situation doesn't have to be determined by what's happened to me. And so we're faced with this new story. This new story beyond cynicism and beyond our jaded lives that offers us the fact that tomorrow can be different. That my life doesn't have to be defined by what's happened to me. And so the story of Advent, the story of Christ's birth, invites us to that. And so, uh, as the band comes, so this Advent, I want to invite you to begin to discover again that God desires to be with you. That in the midst of your busyness this Advent, may you discover that God longs to be with you. In fact, God moved heaven and earth to be with you. May you discover that God can't wait to spend time with you May you discover that God desires to rescue you, to heal you, to forgive you, to make you whole again. May you rediscover this Advent, that Advent isn't just about a baby born in a manger, but it's this grand invitation for us to look at life differently, to live life differently. May you discover that God offers us Emmanuel, God with us. And may you come to know the God who continually again and again moves all of heaven and earth to be with you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for how much you love us. That you love us so much that you are willing to move heaven and earth to be with us. And so we ask that in the midst of our broken stories, in the midst of our mess of a life, that you would come and be our God. That you come to be with us. God, we thank you that you're so interested in taking this mess of our lives and making something beautiful beyond what we could ever imagine out of us. God, I thank you that, that that's, that's what you're good at. You're good at entering the mess and making something beautiful out of it. And so we invite you now, God, to come and search our lives and search our hearts and begin to form us into the people that you've created us to be, and that this Advent, we would be reminded that it's not about all the other things or the busyness of the season or the parties or the gifts, but that you would again help us to focus on this baby born in a, a messy manger who comes to invade our messy lives, offering us grace and hope and peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.